You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. John. Man. I have something I need you to read. It's possibly the best book I've ever read on markets. Oh, that's... I know, even better than the Adam Smith one I was going on about last year. This one is called Invested, How Three Centuries of Stock Market Advice Reshaped reshaped are money markets and minds. I'm not going to read all the authors because there are five incredibly (laughs) dedicated, dedicated academics who sat down together and actually written a history of things that you and I think we know more about than most, the history of newsletters, financial advice books, uh, financial advice magazines, etc. Absolutely fascinating. Now, the first one, first one came out, hang on, I can tell you this, (laughs) Uh, 1761, uh, Mortimer's uh, pioneering, they call it, an actual first guide to investing in the market. Every man his own broker. 1761? Mm-hmm. 1761. Is this then in the UK? In the UK. We got going in the UK first. You know, we're always a leader in this stuff, right? I didn't even realise that... Didn't we... When, uh, sorry, I know being stupid. So there was a South Sea bubble. Mm-hmm. Didn't they, like, ban stocks for ages after no, that, effectively? you could still buy and sell stuff. Oh, OK, I didn't yeah. fully realise that. You know, and this was just gearing up for the was... railway bubble, right? You needed lots oh. and lots and lots of financial advice books for that. So, you know, I've written about... Uh, I've actually written a column about some of them. Uh, there's some really good ones. Moses Smith, he wrote Plain Truths About Stock Speculation. That's a little later. We're moving into the 1800s then. Uh, and then it moved right through, right through, until the most recent ones, you know, um, there's all the Jim Cramer books, etc. There's yeah. uh, the things we've written, you and I, over the years. And yes. then there's Don't Panic, How to Manage Your Finances and Financial Anxieties During and After the Coronavirus. Uh, so, you know, it goes all the way through. There's 300 years worth of people writing these books. Um, and they're all the same. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That first one sounds remarkably like it could have been published, like, tomorrow well you could you could <laughs> publish a book tomorrow called be your own be your broker, own broker yeah. and everyone would buy it every man his own broker no no yeah everyone there everyone own their own broker find. i think is where we are today <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> but the question that I ask, I wrote about this uh, uh, for, for Bloomberg Opinion. The question I ask is, given that there are all these books, I mean, hundreds of thousands of them, well, maybe yeah. tens of thousands. Um, I haven't got to the end of the book yet. Um, <laughs> and they all say roughly the same thing, uh, which is, you know, don't be taken in by stories. Don't pay too much for stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, control your emotions around investing. Uh, don't forget that the price you pay at the beginning is is the main indicator of your long-term returns. Have you read um, my book, The Skeptical Investor? So it's it's remarkable. It sounds so like good. you're John's reciting it off also by says this. John's book says this, but it says this in <laughs> the best possible way. Obviously. By John's book. By John's book. Um, uh, but also by Invested, because uh, it tells you about the other books, which say similar things. <laughs> Anyway, the key point is, if there are this many books out there, if they all say the same thing, if in the main, 
the advice is good because it is. Yeah. Because it's good advice. Why aren't we all rich? Do you know what? It's the same reason that not everyone is skinny and happy. Because mm. self-help is obvious. It's mm. entirely obvious, but you need somebody to say it to you in a way that clicks with you. Mm. That, that's basically yeah. I mean, these are basically, these books are self-help yeah. books in the same way that diet books are self-help books yes. and how to start a business books are self-help books. I mean, I actually remember a financial <laughs> publisher who we both know very well said to me about a decade ago, mm. um, uh, he was launching more and more things. And I said, well, what are we doing here? And he said, well, it's just like the diet industry, Marion. We're not selling action. We're selling hope. <laughs> That is is the brutally cynical take on it. See, see, I do, I I, I actually, I'm quite a believer in self-help and, and, you know, productivity and all of those kinds of things. But it's just that, it is that thing of people can tell you something that is very obvious and you can intellectually know it, but until it sinks through into something that connects with you behaviour-wise or... Mm you're mm. ready to change or whatever. I don't really know what it is that triggers it. Mm. But that's why this stuff does kind of get recycled over and over again mm. because it doesn't true. seem to sink in. Yeah, it is true and it is obvious, but people don't do it. And and yeah, and yeah, it does sell hope to an extent. It's like, look, here's this thing in your life that you perceive to be a problem. You want to change it. I've got a solution. And just so happens the solution is the same solution everyone else will tell you. But... Maybe if you hear it from me in my inimitable style, then you will somehow Maybe take I can it find the right metaphor, the right comparison, the right whatever it is to get through to you. Aye, well, like this, the diets things is the same. Mm-hmm. It's like they, they mostly, apart from the really flaky ones, they mostly boil down to eat something that's kind of like the Mediterranean diet and just don't eat too much of it. But maybe if you do it like oh a five-two Oh my God, he's going to write a diet book. What's going to be uh, called? The Skeptical Diet. The Skeptical Dieter. Skeptical Dieter. Yeah. Oh, fortunes are made. John, <laughs> <laughs> tell me one thing that's obvious in the market today. Um, I, I, what is obvious in the market um, US, UK equities. I'm setting you up so well. Just take it. I mean, UK equities are cheap. That, seemed, that kind of seemed too obvious. They're always cheap at the moment. And actually, that's probably a topic for another discussion at some point. Like, why are they always book. cheap? Um, uh, well, because they're constantly outflows. Why are there always outflows? That's the book. Uh, yeah. right, you can read about this, by the way, in John's newsletter, Money Distilled. He's written about UK equities. And you can also read about it in a Bloomberg Opinion, a column I wrote relatively mm. recently, also on UK equities. And then, uh, you know, go out and buy some books. <laughs> Preferably ours. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset-Webb. This week, our guest is Ben Inker. Ben is the co-head of asset allocation at GMO, which is a value-orientated investment house founded by Jeremy Grantham. Now, the most interesting thing about GMO in this context is the value-orientated bit, because something that we've seen very little of over the last decade is a focus on value and what the price of any particular investment when you buy it means for its future returns. And we've had regular um, papers out from GMO explaining to us over the last few years that if you buy too high, you will not make a good return over the following uh, decade or so. And everyone has ignored that, haven't they, Ben? It did seem so for quite a while. (laughs) They're not ignoring it anymore, though, are they? Well, I don't know. They didn't ignore it last year, but uh, the, the beginning of this year has been a little bit weird. It has, hasn't it? Well, let's come back to the beginning of this year. Let's 
start. Let's start with, you know, we knew that there was an everything bubble kicking off a few years ago. And I think everybody thought that there would be what you might call a, a blow off phase of, of some kind at the end of the bubble. But what we didn't expect, or certainly what I didn't expect, and I suspect you didn't, didn't either, was that that blow off phase, this massive end of the everything bubble would coincide with the economic and financial conditions that we had during during COVID. That felt weird, didn't it? I know you wrote in one of your notes that this was one of the most disorientating times for uh, professional managers to live through. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, we have spent a lot of time studying bubbles uh, over the years. And one of the things that is common across almost all bubbles is they occur at a time where the underlying... Um, economic situation is very good and has been very good for quite a while. Uh, so the particularly odd thing about the COVID bubble was, you know, the economy wasn't going very well. Um, and if you look at times like 1929 or 2000, they were events where the economy had been going great. And the bubble was really generated by people saying, well, I think these great times are going to last forever. Um, and they're wrong on that. The great times never last forever. But normally, you at least have great times. Um, you know, 2020 was not a great time. 2021 was weird, but I wouldn't call it a great time. Um, and yet, uh, we saw uh, what has been uh, coined the everything bubble. Absolutely everything went up at the same time uh, in a way that I'm not sure we have seen well, honestly, ever. Yeah. So interesting. So we learned something really great then, which was which we can use in later date, later times, that uh, you can drag out a bubble by printing vast amounts of money and putting it directly into people's pockets. This is valuable information, right? Who could have guessed? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is, that, that is the interesting thing about this. We have uh, never before put the money quite uh, as directly into people's pockets, uh, especially at a time where they didn't really have very much to spend it on. Um, so in retrospect, you can understand why, uh, I, I can't remember who coined it, the boredom hypothesis, but people had nothing to do, so they speculated. But my God, did the speculation uh, go wild. Mm. So we had all these people sitting at home, big pile of money in their pockets. Um, they've lived through, I mean, most young people in particular have never seen a proper bear market or certainly not one that lasts very long. So they can look at all these statistics for what happens when you put your money in equities. They put their money in equities and nobody tells them that risk is about the price you pay at the beginning. No, well, nobody tells them, but I would say if you... You know, certainly a lot of them were pretty naive, but not all of them were, right? The If you actually spent time reading, you know, Wall Street Bets on Reddit, these were people who were very aggressively saying, fundamentals don't matter. What you have learned in, you know, high school or university doesn't matter uh, you have to unlearn everything you've learned about investing. That's not the same thing as just being a naive person who hasn't experienced the stock market or learned anything about it. That is aggressively saying the rules don't matter anymore. 
Mm. Now, we heard that as well from some of the big fund managers, didn't we? And we won't name any names on this podcast because we're not like that. But, you know, we heard from a lot of the, the big investment houses, the very growth orientated ones, again, that we should unlearn what we thought we knew about investing and that all the big returns over long periods come very small numbers of uh, very, very, very high quality companies. And what you pay for those companies doesn't matter because they're the ones that are going to deliver the returns long-term. And that was a sort of academic backup for the idea that what old-fashioned investors might have perceived as fundamentals are not as relevant as those old-fashioned investors might think. So it wasn't just driven by individuals, it was driven by uh, this new era of growth investing backed by some of the really big names. Yeah, and and I do, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there is this really important piece of investing that that kind of analysis just completely leaves out. Um, and it is what makes growth investing a challenge. And I'm not saying growth investing is a bad idea, but one of the issues with it is the mental image we have of how you make money as a growth investor misses out on an incredibly important piece of your portfolio. Um, and it's understandable that it does so because it is a piece of your portfolio that doesn't stick around that long. The problem with growth investing, yes, you want to find these companies that are going to wind up ruling the world, right? And if you find a company early that winds up ruling the world, that company is going to generate great returns. Uh, and even if it is trading at an optically high PE multiple or price to book or what have you, yes, it will generate good returns. The problem is... Not all of the companies that you hope and expect will do that, do that. And when they fail to do that, when those growth stocks disappoint, the returns are really bad. Um, it is a term that I have tried to uh, uh, popularize and have completely failed. Um, but as a value manager, we always get pushed, what do you do about value traps? How do you avoid value traps? Um, and the thing I try to talk to people about is, yeah, it's true. It's a problem. Owning a value company that turns out to disappoint and isn't worth what you thought it was stinks. But the same thing happens on the growth side. And when those growth companies disappoint, their returns are really bad because not only did the earnings you expected not come in, but the PE that you're prepared to pay for that company as you realize it is less growthy than you thought is a lot lower. So the returns of owning a disappointing growth company are really bad. And the growth stories are, of course, ex post only about the successes. So a mistake in the value arena is much less painful in the end than a mistake in the growth arena. Yeah, that's not to say it isn't painful, right? Uh, so so I, I've I've defined a, a value or growth trap as just any company uh, in the relevant universe that has disappointed on uh, revenues and seen its future revenue forecast come down in the course of a given year. And in the value universe, they underperform the average value stock by nine points a year. I mean, that's really bad. But in the growth universe, those growth traps underperform the rest of the growth universe by 13 points a year. And over the last couple of years, they've underperformed by 20 plus. So the last couple of years have been some of the worst years in history 
to be a growth company that disappointed investors. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Okay, so what is the phrase we're trying to popularize here? Growth trap. Growth traps. We're trying to make people say growth traps. Okay, we can help with that. I can definitely (laughs) help you with that. Okay, so let's move into um, last year. When, which is when growth investors got what some might call their comeuppance and some might call a small blip before everything goes back their way again. Um, but that was, that was a shocker of a year for growth investors and a shocker of a year for everything that wasn't providing the, the returns that one might have expected. Um, how did you feel last year? Vindicated or uh, like things weren't quite as they should have been still? Uh, well, it was, I mean, th- there was a certain amount of satisfaction seeing some of the... Uh, kind of some of the most speculative assets and the backers of those assets uh, get their comeuppance. Um, But it's hard to be excited about a year where pretty much everything went down. And our ability to shield our clients from the losses really depended on the extent to which the clients gave us the authority uh, to move out of stocks and bonds entirely. Where we could do that, we could make them some money uh, because there were things in the liquid alternative space that actually did make money. Where we were stuck in stocks and bonds, we protected some, um, but it's never fun uh, having to talk to your clients about the fact that you lost them a bunch of money, even if you lost them less money than their benchmark Mm, did. Yeah, even if you were intellectually correct, you still lost them money. Yeah, that's going to hurt. Um, but presumably, you were fairly heavily into the you know, the classic value stocks, energy, et cetera, last year. Uh, yeah, we were. Uh, and that definitely helped. We were generally able to, in the asset allocation team, uh, deliver returns that were, were better than benchmarks. But you know, even value stocks around the world lost money. Um, they had their best year in 20 years relative to the market and relative to growth stocks, but they still lost money. 
Mm. And then interestingly, there's something in your latest letter or rather your, your letter at the end of uh, last year about how it was unexpected to find the deep value it underperformed value as a whole when it should normally be the other way around. Yeah, you know, that was one of the slightly weird things. Most times when you have a really big year for value stocks, and again, this was a really big year for value stocks, even if they were going down in absolute terms, most of the time, the story is kind of about value. Even in 2000, when we were experiencing the bursting of the internet bubble, what people were rotating into were the very cheapest value stocks. Um, and this year, we didn't see that. Uh, in, in 2022, value stocks, again, had a very good year relative to the market. It's almost always the case when value beats the market that the very cheapest stocks, uh, we refer to it as deep value, is the cheapest 20% of the market, and shallow value is the next 30. Um, and deep value almost invariably beats shallow value in any year where value wins, except last year. And last year, deep value stocks in the U.S. underperformed shallow value stocks by close to 5%. Um, you know, at least over the last 40 years, it's the only situation we've seen like that. And it was a little bit frustrating, frankly, as a value manager focusing on the very cheapest stocks and seeing the mildly cheap stocks beat you. Um, but on the other hand, it has led to an opportunity we are pretty excited about because those deep value stocks are trading at an extraordinary discount to the overall U.S. market. And the U.S. market fell a good deal last year. So, in absolute terms, they're kind of the most exciting thing in the U.S. we have seen uh, in a number of years. Okay. That brings us very neatly on to where we are now. And, uh, you know, looking looking through what you wrote at the end of last year, you became it came as, as, as close to being excitable as I think possibly GMO managers can, uh, saying that um, having seen possibly the worst outlook for the future you can imagine at the end of 2021. Everything horribly expensive, absolutely nothing you want to hold for the long term, horrible environment. At the end of last year, you begin to look around and go, well, do you know what? Nothing is really expensive anymore. You know, when I look at the uh, the charts that you have, the uh, volatility and return trade-off, et cetera, you're not really looking at negative returns for anything over the next seven years odd. That seems like a Massive turnaround. It, it is a very helpful thing to have markets fall considerably, especially in a circumstance where there's inflation as well. Now, I mean, inflation is not fun. Nobody enjoys the inflation. It, but on the other hand, if the S&P fell by 18% last year and inflation was 7 right? in general, the fair value of equities because equities are real assets, goes up with inflation. So fair value went up by 7. The price went down by 18. So it's 25% cheaper. Now, that doesn't make it cheap in absolute terms, but it makes it a lot less overvalued than it was. Um, so we're certainly not pounding the table and saying, what you really want to buy today is the S&P 500. Um, but whereas a year ago, the S&P 500 was trading at some of the most expensive uh, valuations we have ever seen, kind of second only to the 2000 event. Now it's just expensive. That doesn't sound great. <laughs> Better, but not great. Um, it, it isn't great. But the nice thing is, in a year where 
everything else fell too. Almost everything other than the S&P 500 was cheaper than the S&P 500. So if, you know, emerging came in mildly overvalued and it fell by 20, well, it fell by 20, inflation was 7, so in real terms, kind of relative to fair value, it fell by 27 and maybe it was 15% overvalued. So now it's cheap. Uh, if the EFA markets, if Europe and Japan were you know, 20% overvalued or 25% overvalued, and they fell by similar amounts, they're around fair value. So yeah, it's hard for us to be that excited about US large caps as an index. Um, but the nice thing about a market where everything fell was the things that weren't grossly overvalued to begin with are starting to trade at uh, pretty compelling valuations. So if we look at what what's really cheap, so that would be Emerging market equities, yeah, um, small caps across the board, Japan. You know, I'd say our, our favorite group of small caps around the world is Japanese small caps. Um, partially, that's because the valuations are low. The other thing that's, uh, that's nice about Japanese small caps uh, relative to, say, U.S. small caps, if you look at what's happened over the last decade or so, the average U.S. small company has levered itself up. The average company in the Russell 2500 has something like uh, six times EBITDA in terms of debt. And that used to be the level of an LBO. So U.S. small caps have basically all LBO'd themselves. Japanese small caps, on average, have about zero net debt on their balance sheet. So a thing, it's, it is comforting if you own the Japanese uh, ones is even if the economy gets really bad, they're not going to wind up in economic trouble. Whereas in the US and the UK, where these small cap companies have really levered themselves up, they're more vulnerable. They might get away with it uh, and they levered themselves up in an environment with very low interest rates. So it's not crazy, uh, but it does feel risky. Um, and in Japan and kind of beyond that, uh, continental Europe, uh, they did less of that and they're trading pretty cheap. Uh, and they seem pretty, I'm not going to go so far as to say small caps are truly safe. Um, but these are companies that should be able to withstand a significant recession should one occur. Hmm. And in the UK, UK small caps, and they had a really nasty ride last year. They certainly did. They, um, but, but again, they look like U.S. small caps from a leverage perspective. And when you talk about um, emerging market equities, which, um, I mean, last year that was kind of top of your buy list as well, right, emerging market equities, um, are you excluding China from that? So we are not excluding China from that, but where we have the ability to build the emerging portfolio we want it has less China than the traditional benchmarks. That is not a statement that we think China is uninvestable, but it is a statement that China is risky. Now, the thing about emerging markets is everything is risky in emerging markets. Every country in emerging markets has greater geopolitical and policy risk by virtue of the fact that their institutions are less well-established um, and the amount of damage that can be done by a uh, kind of uh, 
lousy head of state is, is quite big. That's always true. That's always been true. The charm of investing in a diversified EM portfolio is the bad thing that happens in Turkey is not bad for Brazil. The bad thing that happens in Brazil is not bad for South Africa. And so a diversified portfolio of EM countries is generally less risky than any of them. The problem with China is it both showed itself to be somewhat riskier from a policy and geopolitical perspective than some people had imagined it to be last year, and it's really big. So last year, we saw kind of the ultimate nightmare scenario from the standpoint of a foreign investor investing in Russia, right? You invested in Russia because it looked cheap, and then you lost it all. Now, for the emerging markets index, for the emerging markets universe, yeah, that kind of stunk, but it was 3% of the index. So for EM as an index, this was a survivable problem. And that is true across just about everything except China, because China is about 35% of the total. So given that we have a big overweight to emerging markets, because we really think these guys are cheap, we want to be more diversified. And the obvious thing that that means owning somewhat less of is China. Um, but that's not a statement that we hate China. It is a statement that we don't want to have too much concentrated risk in any individual risky country. Now, well, let's go back then to the, the U.S. Because, you know, you said a couple of things about, you know, you don't necessarily want to be big into the S&P 500 there. And one of the things that I've been writing about recently is about how the shift in market environment um, slightly suggests, and I know people have been saying this for years, but it does really feel like now we're getting to the point where you should not be holding the index. You should not be holding passive investments because, you know, you benefited from that massive uh, positive momentum on the way up. But why would you want to be part of the negative momentum as last year's winners begin to contract inside the the index? So if you're looking at, at the U.S. market, let's say the U.S. large cap market at the moment, um, I'm kind of guessing that you wouldn't want to be an index investor right now. Uh, well, we wouldn't, largely because we think the U.S. large cap universe is the most expensive broad group of stocks out there. So it is not a place I particularly want to be putting a lot of my money. Uh, I mean, the, the general charm of index investing is it's cheap um, and you are kind of guaranteed to get the return of that broad group. Be that um, negative or positive. <laughs> Be that negative or positive. Um, now, the S&P 500 has been difficult for managers to beat for quite a while because it was the returns were driven by mega caps. And it is really hard to own more of the mega cap companies than the index does. Um, active investors are almost always more equally weighted than the index is. They've had a bias, therefore, towards, I wouldn't say small, but towards you know, large and medium companies against the mega caps. And that has killed them because of how, how wonderfully the mega caps have done in the US. Uh, I do think this is probably a tougher time to be a mega cap company. Uh, some of them are both facing ultimate limitations to growth, uh, which it had seemed they were immune to for a while, uh, as well as more aggressive government activity against them. So the age of 
mega cap dominance may be behind us. Um, certainly, the I mean, the other thing is it has been an age of U.S. dominance, right? The U.S. market has just beaten the pants off of every other market out there for the past uh, 12 years. Uh, we think that's poised to change. We've been saying that for a while. Um, obviously, the valuations are all in favor of the rest of the world against the U.S., but the other thing that has really happened is the U.S. dollar has become very overvalued, um, and that is a tough situation for U.S.-based companies uh, that will hurt their earnings, and the companies in countries on the other side where their currencies are really undervalued have a lovely tailwind behind them. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It's interesting, isn't it, that people still have this idea that the U.S. has always been uh, trading at a premium to markets around the rest of the world. And I still talk to people who say, well, that premium will remain because the U.S. has always traded at a premium. But, but it hasn't, has it? I mean, it's a relatively recent phenomenon that the U.S. has traded at a significant valuation premium to everywhere else. So there's no reason at all where they shouldn't, that shouldn't completely mean revert. Yeah, absolutely. It it is basically something that occurred over the last 10 years or so. In 2012, the US was trading at very similar valuations to everywhere else. On average, the US has traded at a somewhat higher valuation to say the emerging world, which kind of makes sense because they're risky. Um, but yeah, relative to the rest of developed countries, it doesn't have a long history of trading at a big premium. Uh, it is right now trading at a big premium. And that premium has been growing for long enough that people have trouble remembering that it wasn't a forever thing. Yeah, there's a lot of that about, isn't there? Okay. So I think what you're telling us is that we need to relearn everything we ever knew about investment, <laughs> if we learned that stuff about investment in the last decade. 
Well, I, I do think um, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to uh, brush off those ideas of, uh, you know, calculating discounted cash flows and figuring out what uh, an asset will be worth based on uh, its earnings and, and, and payouts. Uh, I think that's going to be pretty relevant um, uh, after a little while where even a discussion of that uh, made you seem like you were completely out of touch. Mm. Okay, so um, we're going to attempt to avoid uh, the US except for the deep value part. Look at EM uh, without really penalizing China too much. Look at Japanese small caps. Think about small caps in uh, Europe. Uh, we're going to think a little more active than passive. I should have said before I asked you that, about that bit, passive versus active, that that's the part of the podcast we call, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? And then we wait and see how good the answer is. Um <laughs> You know, one one thing just worth adding in terms of the active versus passive. Um, passive can be a, a, a fairly tricky thing, right? There are it, it is now very easy to get exposures you want in in ETFs all over the world. And one of the things you can do if you believe, as we do, that value stocks are attractively priced, okay, you could buy a value index. Well, right now. It matters extraordinarily which value index you pick. Um, last month, the S&P 500 value index beat the S&P 500 growth index by a point and a half, whereas the MSCI version of value lost to growth by eight. Uh, it's an absolutely extraordinary difference, um, which has to do with the way S&P defines value uh, for for S&P, any stock that has really bad momentum has a tinge of value to it. So it doesn't matter how expensive you are. If you did really badly, you kind of get pushed um, into the value universe. Uh, and last month was one of the sharpest reversals that we've seen. It's not that weird to see it in a January. January often sees negative momentum do pretty well. Um, but a lot of the negative momentum stocks that did really well weren't cheap. Um, so if you were measuring them on a PE or price to book or price to sales basis, ugh, they didn't look so good. Uh, but if you were just saying, well, hands up, who had the worst momentum last year? Um, and let's take a chunk of those and call them value. It, it did do well. My concern is, man, I don't know what that S&P value index is. It does not feel like value to me right now. It's interesting, isn't it? It kind of um, uh, suggests that I often write about this saying that we talk about passive, but there isn't really any such thing as passive because you have to take so many active asset allocation decisions to get to your passive in the first place. So it doesn't really exist, this idea that you can passively follow something. It is certainly a lot harder than it seems like it should be. Mm, mm. Okay, let's very briefly, two more things I want to ask you about. The first thing is what on earth is going on this year because all the things that we've been talking out, they're not playing out. Yeah, I don't understand it. Um, you know, you would have thought that the pain in crypto and meme stocks it would have been enough to cause people to say, yeah, maybe this wasn't such a good idea, right? Normally, in a really painful event, you lose 60 to 80 to 90% of your money. Um, you know, we used to talk about the fact that after an event that painful, it took a generation, to get another speculative event because the people who lost that money are never going to play again. Well, 
if we've experienced a generation, uh, I mean, maybe a generation of mayflies, I, I, I don't understand because people are plowing back into the same stuff. Bed Bath & Beyond was up 92% yesterday for a company that is not merely teetering on the verge of bankruptcy, but my God, it is hard to imagine how it's ever going to generate positive cash flows, even if it got out from under its debt load. But people are leaping back in. Do you know, Ben, you may have just, you may have just learned something that um, those of us in Scotland have known for a long time, which is that a generation is way, way shorter than it used to be. <laughs> you don't need to understand that. That's a joke for the Scots. But, you know, as Jeremy has been talking about, Jeremy Grantham, our firm's founder, has been talking about the fact that the, the bear market isn't really over until there's full repudiation of the prior uh, underlying thesis. Um, and if he's right, then this one doesn't feel like it's over. Now, everything doesn't have to turn out, you know, as, as a morality play. Um, but there is a certain amount of sort of self-fulfilling prophecy to financial markets. Um, and what we have been seeing is certainly uh, not evidence that uh, investors are back to actually worrying about what assets are truly worth. Um, but rather, what assets do they hope are going to be up a lot in the afternoon? Mm, it's more fun thinking about what's going to be up in the afternoon than thinking about long-term value of different asset classes. I get that. Would you ever buy crypto, Ben? Got a little Bitcoin holding on the side? I Someone would have to convince me of the actual use case. Um, and I think what we've seen uh, it, across 2022 is that the use case of crypto was enabling people to do speculation in crypto. Um, and it was really good at that, but that's, man, that's not a very stable um, use case. So maybe there will be some other use case that comes up, uh, but otherwise, right, it's not, it's not an investment. There are no future cash flows. You can't say, what should this thing be worth? Um, uh, and I mean, the, the thing that is amazing to me about crypto is that lack of cash flows, that lack of anything you could get your brains around or your hands on in terms of what this thing would be worth was viewed as a feature, not a bug. Um, that was part of its charm. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think that the ordinary investor should be holding for the next couple of years? Or have we covered everything? Um, you know, we've covered most of it. I, the thing I just want to emphasize is that even though in 2022 it was the best year for value in a long time, after 15 years of value relentlessly losing to growth, it's still trading very cheap relative to the market. Uh, so the general value opportunity is really good today. Um I'm a little bit nervous about the implementation of value across some of the index providers. Um, uh, so you want to be careful about what you're doing. But we really do think the next five to 10 years should continue to be a good one uh, for value investing in, in stocks. Brilliant, Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We will be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And do remember that if you are going to review it, review it well, because we prefer those reviews. Thank you to everyone who has already reviewed the podcast. We hugely appreciate it. And of course, our podcast our producer is absolutely obsessed with reading those reviews. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Summer Saadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks, of course, to Ben Inca. Thank you very much, Ben. And to John Stepek. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. This week, I know you're all obsessed with house prices. There's house prices in there. Sign up and you can read about that. The link is in the show notes. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.